Richards Bowie Versus Tillian Is this year when I'm glowy Am I killing? I hope it's not a blowy Or a villain It's time for Bowie versus Dylan. All right, welcome back to Bowie versus David. I'm Charlie, and I like David Bowie. Chaz, I just want to point out that you said Bowie versus David for the <laughs> intro. Uh, I'm really thinking a lot about Bowie right now. <laughs> Who would? Can I just can I just ask who would win between Bowie versus David? That sounds like a uh, probably David's is David's a real person and Bowie's a stage name. Yeah, but Bowie Although Bowie's a pretty monumental stage name. That's what I'm saying. Poor little Davy Jones. If I had to choose, I would choose Bowie. That's what everyone calls Bowie him. No one's David, like, yeah. hey, have, oh, you, have you listened to David recently? There was like Bowie. <laughs> All right, keep going. <laughs> oh, you go. You got to start over. Do it. Oh, I'm not sure if we were using that or not. It's kind of funny. Yeah, we are, but you're going to have to start over anyway. Okay. Welcome to Boy vs. David. I just did it again. <laughs> <laughs> this is fantastic. All have right, you been, all right. Have right. you been drinking? Here. here we go. All right. Welcome to Bowie vs. Dylan. Yeah, that's right. I'm Charlie, and I like David Bowie. And I'm Jake, and I like Bob Dylan. Today, we are talking about the year 1997. Uh, it is the, what, fourth in our series? Third in our series of years? Fourth. fourth, excuse me. The first one was a retrospective of our love for our respective artists. And the remaining, I'm going to guess, I don't know, 50-some, <laughs> are going to be trying to determine who of Bob Dylan or David Bowie won any particular year in which they were both active, which, as I said, is like 50-some years or something, which is pretty quite yeah. crazy. Um, so today we're talking about 1997, and uh, Charlie, you're going to be talking about David and Bowie today. <laughs> Both of them at the same time. So, okay, 97 is an interesting year because it's the first year we've done where either one of us was alive. Mm. And you were both, you know, like, cognizant Good call. of that fact, you know? I didn't think of that. Uh, I started high school in 97. You were two, a couple years older than you were already in high school. Sophomore. But uh, you were more musically aware than me at the time due to your, you know, advanced age, we'll call it. And uh, just the fact you got more into music a little earlier than I did. But we're into interesting periods for our for our gentlemen here. Now, i, I got to ask before you get into this. Were you already a fan of Dylan in 97 I was. came out? I was a fan, but something okay. changed when this album came out, for sure. Okay. All right. I look forward to that, you know, little, those anecdotes later on. It's a nice So it's a nice I was piece. not a fan of Bowie yet for 97. It wasn't for a while there. And I don't know if I discovered, I, I probably would have if I discovered this album at the time. I was in this kind of thing. And 97 for Bowie is a year that, it's one of those years that just kind of revolves around the album that came out. And, like, I swear everything he did for the entire year was related to his 97 album. I was like... Yeah. So, um, and it's just like, it was... And it's, it's a different... It's really different doing this year versus our previous years, 76 and 69. Because looking back at those older years, it just was a different uh, template for how these kinds of things were done, I feel like, totally. you know? Like, you didn't have to. You didn't tour off of every album in the 60s and 70s, you know? That's because like, tours you, were just a little extra thing. They were advertising. Right. You released nowadays, an album you know, every, like, seven months or something like that. What's that? You released an album, like, every seven months instead oh, sure, of this big build-up. You right. know? You're just hanging out in the studio. You're like, well, let's, let's knock out another one. Why not? <laughs> hey, um, Mick, come on down. And by night, <laughs> come on, Mick, let's do it. Uh, and so by this time, we're getting more into, like, the standard, you know, you release an album, you tour, you take your off, you, you know. You have some vids. You get an album. You, you know, you know, you maybe be in a couple bad movies or something, and then you For go sure. back. If you're David So, Bowie. 97, though, is, it kicked off with a bang. Because Bowie turned 50 Whoa. in the first month. In the first month of 97, on uh, January, oh shoot, January 8th, I think, pretty sure his birthday is. Um, and so he did this gigantic blockbuster 50th birthday concert. It's pay-per-view, two and a half hours, the whole nine yards. Yeah, he, uh, he lined up his band, which he had, he had a pretty good band at the time. I'm going to review him really quickly. Uh, one guy was Reeves Gabriels, who worked with Bowie in his ill-fated Tin Machine band that he started in the late 80s. Great band. And went into the early 90s. I know. And 
Reeves Gabriels kept working with him through most of the, the 90s. Uh, he had Gail Ann Dorsey, who was just a really awesome bass player who looked really... She was one of those people who just looks really cool all the time. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I don't know anything about her, but she's cool. She's yeah, a bassist. she's also really, a really wicked bass player. Um, he had Mike Garson, who is this, like, jazzy piano player who uh, kind of, even he plays kind of sounds like Rhapsody in Blue. And some Bowie, like, married this to all kinds of weird industrial sounds in his previous album, Outside, from 1995. Okay. And, uh, and Garson, like, first shows up. Uh, Aladdin Sane, I think, 73. So oh, wow. the character just keeps coming up, like, he's gone for 10 years and comes back for a couple albums, like, throughout Bowie's career. And then, uh, some dude on drums, I can't remember his name, so sorry, dude on drums, but he was pretty awesome, too. <laughs> anyway, so he's got this crack team there for the 50th birthday concert, and then they line up six wicked guest stars. And they're Mega notable stars. to me personally because I can probably say that I own at least one album from all six of these artists. So I watched this whole concert. It was pretty rad. Okay. Well done. So first guest was Frank Black, uh, previously of the Pixies. Of course. Second one was the entire Foo Fighters. <laughs> and, then, and then Dave Grohl. And if you were thinking 97, so these guys were relevant then. They were big. They, they mattered. Maybe not now, but, you know, it's all right. Well, they still sort of matter now. Additional song. Our third one was uh, Robert Smith. Oh, wow. Who, yeah, I know. It was, and it was interesting, you know, like choices there. Which those two's voices do not go together at all, in mm, case you're wondering. Mm-hmm. Just in case you're wondering. I have one Cure album. That was probably the one I care the least about on this list. Up number four was Sonic Youth. Wow. Just tearing it up. Uh, number five was Lou Reed. Okay. And he stuck around the logs. Now it obviously makes a lot of sense because they'd worked together in the early 70s and you know, right. knew each other a long, long time. And Lou, Lou, and might, Lou might have been available in the, in the late 90s. In the late 70s, he <laughs> didn't have a lot of other stuff going on. Yeah. And uh, number six came with Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins. No way, is that true? He was awful, but that's okay. We're he's, right with that. He's always awful. <laughs> he's <laughs> he the just, worst. You know, like, one of these awesome on stage. But he, uh, you know, he obviously wanted to be about him for some reason. Because also, he's, a, cause he's a narcissist. Nobody's, nobody's voice blends well with Billy Corgan's. No. Nobody in the entire Norn universe. No, it's guy, true. He's got his own voice, and fine. But he cannot have anyone else do backup vocals. He's got to do it himself. There's no harmonies. Nothing blends with his voice. Nothing. <laughs> so, but the concert was awesome. He, uh, Bowie was in a period there where he was like refusing to play the old hits, which Good. I'm sure lots of people hated, but it's kind of cool to watch now. Oh, he great. played almost all of Earthling before Earthling was actually released, which I'm sure the audience hated, but it was pretty cool. It was a rad show, I was going to say. So great. it was January. Okay. Uh, Earthling comes out then in February, and he basically spends the entire rest of the year, like, just working on it, just, you know, advertising and stuff. Yeah. So from February to May, he does like a million TV and radio appearances. He's all over the place. Yeah. He appears on Saturday Night Live, Jay Leno, David Letterman, Conan O'Brien. Wow. Rosie O'Donnell. Oh, the best one of all. Remember Rosie O'Donnell having her own show? I do, kind of. I, I, I found that clip online and I watched it. Oh, baby. And it was it was kind of surreal. It was one of those like really strange... <laughs> Boy moments. Welcome to the nineties. Seems it seems as though they were like friends in real life. Okay. Like Rosie O'Donnell and uh, and Bowie and his wife Iman. Apparently, Iman and Rosie were in a movie together or something. Uh huh. And uh, and so they're like talking about this and joking around, like how like you know when they went to dinner last week or something, and uh, and that just kept coming up. And then uh, Rosie O'Donnell kept asking him to play Little China Girl. It's a nineteen eighty three hit. And uh, disturbing Bowie kept song. Insisting he wasn't going to do it, and then he turns things around and whips out a goose guitar out of nowhere and uh, plays "Little Rosie Girl" instead of "Little China Girl," and it was painful to watch. That sounds awful. It was really <laughs> that part was really bad. And then they sing over to him and his crack band playing a couple tunes, and those were awesome. Okay. Iman shows up too. Iman just comes right on the show at one point too. Way to go, Iman! Good for her. I know. I know. We need, awesome we need more Iman. We need more Iman and less Bowie. awesome and glamorous, as she always is all the time. So classy. So classy. So that's what he does from February to May, and there's so many different appearances. And this was interesting, again, doing this after I left 1969. Because in 1969, Bowie, I literally went online and found absolutely every single live, recorded, anything appearance whatsoever of Bowie for the entire year. Yes. I was like, this is awesome. I listened to every single thing there was. And with this is awesome. This is really kind of cool. I'm going to try to do this for every year. And then I got to 97, and there were just hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of stuff online. There's so many different live shows. 
there's so many different radio shows that like all this stuff we did. I went, okay, well, I guess I'm, I guess I'm not doing that then. So I came up, you know, with some representatives. I watched the whole day concert, which was great. I found some other clips. I listened to his uh, the, the live album that was recorded from the period, which we'll get to in a minute. And uh, yeah, it was just really great. So that's like three months of promo then. And he spent the rest of the year touring, May to November. He tours the world. Wow. I don't know how many shows they did. So that's the Earthling tour. And this went and went and went and went. Now, there is a live album that was plucked from that uh, tour, which is an interesting little gem. It won't count towards points for this show because it wasn't released until 99. Correct. Um, but it, it wasn't all one show. It was a few songs from a few different shows. It was one of that type of live, but all from the same tour. It's called, and, and this may date it slightly, <laughs> it's called uh, liveandwell.com. Oh my goodness! Are you serious? It's the name he's got. He's got dot com in the name of his of his uh, live album. Wow! Which was super cutting edge in nineteen ninety seven. Yeah, like what's the web? <laughs> like whoa! Well, Bowie, Bowie knew it. That's the thing. <laughs> he knew it. And well, whenever we get to ninety eight, he started his own like web server in ninety eight called BowieNet. Yeah. And talk to fans online and stuff, and that that'll be worth. That's crazy. Ninety eight for sure, because he sure. was the guy doing this. He was the first major artist to release a. Uh, a track online. Wow. Like, you just did this. He released a single online only. All right, we're, we're not talking about, ni- we're not talking about 98. Move it along. Well, okay, all right. Well, back up. Okay. <laughs> so liveandwell.com is a rare Bowie album I don't own, and here's why. It was not released commercially. It was only released to subscribers of Bowie Net wow, in 1999. I see. I see. And re-released to subscribers of Bowie Net in 2000. And, uh, and so consequently, it was pretty rare. This is one of those releases that was always on my list, like, I'm going to buy it someday. Yeah. I can find it used for, like, 20 or 30 bucks, which, like, you know, like, it's, it's low enough that eventually, you know, eventually I'm going to get to that one when, you know, when I'm done with getting everything else. Yep. And then in the wake of Bowie's death, now it's, like, $500. Oh, yeah. Literally. At least. Bowie's death just, just took havoc on all of those, uh, the used prices on everything rare. So I don't own this, but I was able to find it online. I listened to it. It's good. Um, his 10 tracks are all from his two previous albums outside an Earthling. So there's no classics on there at all, but both those albums are solid. And then there's a completely unnecessary second disc of remixes because everything he released had an unnecessary second release, second disc of release. He was the king of the, as far as I could tell. He was the king of the bad remixes. So many remixes. So, (laughs) so many remixes. So Earthling, yeah, we're going to go with that. Other notable things for the year. Uh, he got a star on the Walk of Fame in 1997. Oh. Nice one, nice one, Bowie. Talk about classy. I, I know, I know. It's really classy. He was there. Iman was there. It was great. Everyone loved it. Actually, I don't know if any, a lot of people cared in 97, but it was okay. I didn't love it. And then the other kind of notable, interesting thing is a little something called Bowie Bonds. This will fill up my last five minutes probably talking about him here. So, Bowie Bonds. So, Bowie, uh, you know, I won't get into all of the details of his weird management situation in the 70s but basically what it came down to was uh, all his material from about 69 to 80 was partly owned by him because he was a really pioneering artist in making sure he actually owned the recordings to his music and everything yeah which was and, and he was doing this from like 69 on which he was when he was nobody and it was really notable for him that he was actually worrying about that and creators rights and stuff then because most people were like signing contracts and that was it you know you didn't even think about it oh Bob Dylan got screwed out of like millions of dollars oh I bet he did so Bowie owned most of his own music, but then his management company owned some significant stake. I want to say it was like 40% okay. of all that music up through 1980. I think it goes up to 82, technically, until he switched over, and then he controlled everything after that. So Bowie, what he did ultimately was he issued these bonds, and me not being an average American who does not understand how you know like money works on any kind of high-scale thing, my understanding of bonds is you pay somebody for something now, uh-huh. They stake it on something that they own that's like, you know, going to earn revenue of some kind. And then later on, they pay you back more than what you gave them in the first place. That's how that's I understand it. basic understanding about bonds work. And they tell so, you at the time that you purchase them how much it will be worth yes, in the future. Yes, how much it will be worth. And there's a little bit of a, a, a risk there because, you know, this is what they're guessing it will be. But, you know, it's the expectation. So Bowie released Bowie Bonds <laughs> based on the... Expected future album sales wow. for his, at that point, the 25 albums he'd released at that point. 
in uh, studio albums and live albums. Except for his first one, anything before Sing Gang, he did not control the recordings at all. Okay. So he sold these bonds. The expectation it was a 10-year thing, that in 10 years he was going to pay at you know 8.7% or something. Apparently it was a pretty good rate. Like These are certified. He's got the assets behind it because he's consistently been selling albums for all of this time. He, during that 10 years, does not make any royalties off of the recordings of his songs. You know, he hmm. still owns the songs themselves, so people have covers or whatever, you know, he gets money from that. But nothing from recordings. Um, he gets paid, he gets a, a paycheck of $55 million Ooh. in 1997. I know, it's sweet. Oh, daddy. And then he uses part of that money to immediately buy the rest of the rights to his music from 1969 to 1980. Diabolical. So after it's done, he owns, like, and you know... After 2007, I mean, well, it's not even, you know, so after, after some kind of 97, he owns the rights to all of his music from 1969 on, which is the part anybody cares about. Nobody cares about the first five years. Of course not. Except for that, com- except for that combi that keeps milking it so hard. Oh, baby. Oh, probably. <laughs> I was going to say, we're probably ready for another reissue. We actually aren't releasing this first album on vinyl. Again. So many reissues. Yeah, it's coming out on a record store day. I just saw it the other day. Uh, so, it's kind of a bold move. And there ends up being, like, a brief vogue for different artists doing stuff like this. Yeah. Um, shoot, I can't remember who else who did it. But there were several that did it, several pretty big-name people who did this exact same thing then in the wake. Now, the Bonds ended up being fairly successful. He sells them all really easily. Now, what does hurt things as they go on is, of course, the music industry kind of collapses in the early 2000s, <laughs> which nobody saw coming, thanks to, you know, all the digital stuff that Bowie himself is helping to to use. Um, they did not default. So there was that, like they did actually, the people did actually get their money in wow. 2007 and he did, uh, he, then he regained publishing rights, started making money off again in 2007. It's kind of a sweet thing. Indeed. So Bowie bonds, Bowie bonds. All right. And my last thought before we turn things over to you here for yeah. you, you're in the, in the, the Dylan, whatever, uh, is of course my, my new feature, uh, the urine hair for getting Bowie. <laughs> I love this feature. So, oh, I know. So, the urine hair, David Bowie. <laughs> you gotta picture this, like, he was kind of going, he's kind of this, like, sleazy rock aesthetic, you know, for late 90s, like, super weird, cyber, cyberpunky, you know, like, like how movies thought that hackers looked, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, kind of weirdly techno-y, I don't know, he's got, like, the black leather jacket, and he's got a soul patch-ish Ooh. thing. Okay. It's, like, longer and skinnier, <laughs> and he's got... Bright, like the you know, like the reddish of you know, not not we're not talking fire engine red. We're talking like you know, pseudo hair red, kind of the same color he had as the Stardust. Super, super spiky and up. Of course, he's gone. You know, he's fifty and dressing like you know, a twenty-six year old. Yeah, which was something he liked to do at various times of life. So the hair, I mean, for Bowie, it's kind of in the middle. I'm gonna give it a middle mark. You know, there's there's no mullet in sight, which is always a good thing to have <laughs> when it does not have a mullet. Shocking, shocking, and you know, kind of good for him. So I don't know. I, I don't have a rating system for the Bowie hair. I think you but should. The Bowie the year of hair. I don't know. And it maybe a scale of, of zero to five. And maybe like for him, it's like a three. Okay. For the average person, probably about a one. <laughs> Now, what about what about time specific? Like for that time, would other people have had that hairstyle, or was that something that he kind of was like, "I'm doing this"? No, I think I probably had that hairstyle. You had it, okay, that. all right. Not not dyed that color. Kind of no. Brown. Although I did unearth the picture of myself when I dyed my hair blonde. I remember in my that senior year of high school. Do you remember that? Oh yeah. It was like super blonde. Because a friend of mine was dyeing her hair blonde, and I was helping her for some reason. And she's like, "Hey, there's a little bit left. Do you want to dye your hair blonde?" I'm like, "Yeah, let's do it." Like, that seems like a great. It kind of looks like my hair then, so I can't you know get too much against him for the time period because I remember thinking my hair was pretty sweet at the time. I think you should. It probably was. So there you go. I think you should give yourself a two. Don't sell yourself <laughs> give short. Give myself a two. If Bowie got a three, I could at least get a you're two. You're just yeah, you're great. just below. Just pull out Bowie. Just pull out David freaking Bowie. You know, and all right. Well, let's hand things over to uh, to your man Bob Dylan here. All right, nineteen ninety seven. Bob Dylan's nineteen ninety seven. One of I'm the gonna, I'm gonna pick at you the whole time. Just, you know, that's fine. You talked so fast, I couldn't pick at you. <laughs> Sorry, you I'm just excited. you just bulldozed it. You I'm better not about the spiky orange hair. Mm, well, you made fun of the hair. Dylan had uh, Dylan just had his regular Jufro hair, <laughs> except kind of, does, he, does his hair change a lot? I gotta ask. 
No, it really I don't doesn't. Think I feel like I've seen a lot of. I don't. Shirts, uh, you know, like you spend a lot of time. You spend a lot of time thinking about Bowie's hair, as you should. There's, n- <laughs> there's like no reason to think about Bob's hair. Bob, like his hair, kind of went from being, you know, looking iconic. Of course, his hair uh-huh. is very iconic, especially in the mid '60s. Um, you know, sometimes he kind of slicked it back. Other times, he looked like a homeless man. You know. <laughs> Um, we call that time the 80s. We call that time the 80s. He looked like he fell off a yacht <laughs> in the Bahamas, maybe. <laughs> he didn't know where Bobby, he was. Bobby at the period, of course, looks like he was the, the yuppie, the drunk yuppie <laughs> driving that yacht. <laughs> His hair was magnificent. <laughs> oh, Bowie's was very much, you know, it was plastered down that it was it was great. It was about movie an inch. All right, that, that, uh, that being said, <laughs> Dylan and his hair woke up... <laughs> Woke up in 1997, uh, having in the midst of a personal musical revival. He had gone in 1996. I only mentioned the year because he recorded some of um, the album that would come out, "Time Out of Mind," in September 1997. He recorded okay. demos for it um, in late 1996 in California. Okay. He um, hooked up with a producer named Daniel Lanois who uh, is an extremely successful, extremely, uh, what do you call it, prickly producer. Okay. He had producing credits along with Brian Eno on U2's Biggest Albums, Joshua Tree, okay. and Octune Baby. Right, he was right. definitely so involved with, Eno. he was an Eno acolyte, um, but he did, yeah. he, did go, he did go on to um, you know, do a lot of producing and make his own albums of like slide guitar. He often played on the albums that okay. he produced as well. Um, I'm going to share a quote with you later that he said when, I, when I'm when i trying to describe their relationship. Dylan had worked with him once before in 1989 for the album Oh Mercy, which was a minor comeback album, especially you know in regards to what he had put out in the in the rest of the 80s, which was just oh. abysmal. Like, <laughs> I feel like Dylan could have the uh, the comeback meter. Like, how big of a comeback was this album for like everything after? 1966 or something. Exactly. And so the comeback meter in 1989 for Old Mercy was probably about a, I want to say like a six or seven. Okay. However, he ruined it a again. Time out of mind, though. I yeah. Mean, I know that. Like, I heard that name and went, oh, yeah, that's one of his comeback albums. Oh, that's the comeback album. That's the, is that, would you say this number one comeback album? Um, gosh, that's a good question. I think people would probably, would probably put Blood on the Tracks as his number one comeback album. Okay. Okay. But it had been 23 years since he had released a classic, a real classic album. Okay. So he was in the wilderness. He had the 80s to contend with. He disappeared after um, a debacle in 1990 where he released an album called Under the Red Sky, um, which I can't wait to get to 1990 and learn all about this thing. It's a real, <laughs> it's his worst album, I think. I think okay. it's his worst album. And so All then right. he retreated from the studio and he went and recorded covers of old songs for his next two albums um, in okay. 90, I want to say 91 and 93. And then he just kind of disappeared for a little bit. He was still touring, but he, he was... Because <laughs> you got you to tour. Well, he's on a, he was on a never-ending tour since 1988. And um, <laughs> it hadn't <laughs> been that long at that point. Correct. Yeah, it still continues. Uh, he... Apparently had a bolt of inspiration. He was like, uh, he was staying up all night while the thunder rolled and all this stuff. And he started writing down all these lyrics, which would become the songs for Time Out of Mind. And so he was excited. And for whatever reason, he went back to Daniel Lanois, who, as I said, is prickly. And they had a prickly relationship. Uh-huh. Um, both geniuses, apparently. Um, and Daniel Lanois being, you know, not as much of a genius maybe as Bob Dylan, but just as stubborn. So he was. They had an interesting working relationship. Um, so he ended up recording that album in early 1997 and then releasing it in on September 30th, 1997. Yeah. And you were saying how, you know, uh, Bowie did this huge full-court press for his album. Oh, yeah. That it was year. all over. All over the place. He was doing the thing. You know, all the singles, yeah. all the TV shows, all this stuff. This is like Dylan did the opposite of that. He released <laughs> He released zero singles from uh-huh. this album, which had huge advance praise and all this sort of thing. Yeah. Like, everyone immediately realized he was back and that this was something extraordinary. Um, all the critics and all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. It went to number 10 in the U.S. and number 10 in the U.K. 
Um, but again, this is during the like absolute peak of CD sales. So probably yeah, oh, yeah. whoever nine bands were ahead of him that week were probably like huge hits. You know what I mean? Right. Um, it ended up selling a million copies, which a lot of his ended up doing. Yeah. Not, I guess, I don't know if that's surprising or not surprising. His reputation outstrips his sales. Like, he's kind of the number one yeah. artist where that's true. Nah, it happens with a lot of people, actually. Yeah, I guess it does. But Bob Dylan's reputation is, like, he's the best songwriter of all time or something like especially, that. Especially an artist like, you know, either one of our guys here where, who had this giant, unbelievable, unstoppable heyday. Yeah. And then uh, just kind of kept existing for a few more decades after that and, mm-hmm. and releasing music the entire time. It's not like, you know, uh, the Rolling Stones of the Who who had stopped releasing music decades ago, essentially. You know? So they're still, like, riding that reputation if there's nothing else. Dylan and Bowie, like, they kept going and going and going. And sometimes they shouldn't have kept going, but they did. Well, they kept going, so all right. The, you know, stuff is selling, I suppose. And I guess it's it's kind of hard to overstate how important this album was for Dylan's legacy. Like, he he completely rescued himself artistically. Right. Like, he went from zero to 100. Like, I think he was really forgotten in the mid-90s. Like, Neil Young was playing with Pearl Jam, and yeah, yeah. Bowie was, you know, I don't know if he had yet, but he was friendly with these industrial acts, which were big at the time. Oh, like yeah, Nine you already toured with Nine Inch Nails. Exactly. Stuff like that. Dylan, who, you know, the, the consummate loner, he was just off in a corner somewhere. He always did what he wanted to do anyway, whatever it was. And it just, it hadn't worked in so, so, so long. Uh-huh. And um, he went in to record this album. And the, it's probably the major, the major thing about the actual recording process is that he came and he actually worked on it in the studio, which is not something that he ever did. He would kind of blow in. Um, he preferred producers that didn't tell him what to do, just push the buttons, uh-huh. you know, just push record that kind of thing. But he wanted to change his, you know, he wanted to change his routine and change his legacy. So I'll talk about the way that it was recorded now, and I'll talk a little bit more about the okay. musical part when we do the points. Well, I got, I got to say here, too, I did, I did get a, you know, spin, do one spin of uh, Time Out of Mind. Yeah. And to me, my very first impression, you know, not super well-informed about Bob Dylan and his side everything, but it felt like one of his kind of classic albums, like... It's just, it sounded very just Bob. Yeah, like it didn't sound like Bob. him doing country or him doing something else. It just sounded like Bob being the epitome of Bob to me. Do you feel like that's fair or is that just me making stuff up because I don't really know the subject very well? No, I think, I think that's fair with the songwriting. Like, it was like he forgot how to write a really good Bob song for like a long yeah. time. And then all of a sudden he remembered again and he put out these, I mean, the lyrics are so dense and so, you know, roundabout and... And and what have Dylan you? Dylan esque? Would you just discuss? I would. Say Dylan-esque I would call it. You know, if if I didn't know any better, I'd call it Dylan esque. But this was a collaboration with Lanois, and I'll share. I'll right. share. I'll share this quote um, with you in a second. Um, when they were recording it, Dylan demanded that they go for some reason record in Miami, Florida. <laughs> I was like, I've been really humorous picture of Bob in Miami. Right yeah, now. right. Exactly. It's like, what are you doing? He's there, wearing Bob? a Hawaiian shirt. It's great. Yeah, yeah, he fell off the yacht and he ended up in Miami. <laughs> but he had been he had been recording with Lanois, the demos at least in in California, where they both lived and where Lanois had his studio where he recorded okay. everyone, you know. And uh, Bob was like, "No, we're going to Miami, Florida, and I'm going to take my road band with me, who he never recorded with in the studio for whatever Bob reason he had." <laughs> So he brought he brought those guys in there, and sometimes it was up to like twenty three musicians in the room, and they just recorded live in the room, you know, based on these demos, uh-huh. and really worked on it. Like Bob was really really working on it, and um, he got contentious with Lanois, and Lanois got contentious with him. Apparently, Lanois was famous for getting angry with his um, subjects or whatever, and smashing okay. gu- smashing guitars. That was his thing. <laughs> Sweet. The producers smashing guitars. So whenever Bob got frustrated, he would go out and ride his bike around for like a half hour. And sometimes we're talking, we're talking like bicycle or motorcycle. Like a bicycle. Okay. I, I always that's, imagine that's a, really, that's a really humorous image in my brain as well. Exactly. Right now. now, now imagine he's are out there like with a little bell on his bike, like <laughs> dinging his little bell. I've, I've got like the uh, the trading card and the spokes and everything in my brain right now. Oh, he's definitely smoking while he's riding the bike for sure. Well, smoke. I, I said a little like one like, of those trading cards in the spokes that kind of oh. like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bob's like, I gotta think of something for this lyric. <laughs> ding ding. <laughs> He's not wearing a helmet. He's oh no, his hair would not. Big, 
His hair would not allow him. His hair is a helmet. His hair is the helmet. He has a hair helmet. (laughs) (laughs) And every time he gets a good lyrical idea, he rings the bell. That's what I imagine. (laughs) (laughs) So he and Lanois would go out to the parking lot sometimes when they disagreed and just scream at each other and, like, hash it out. And apparently, you know, it was contentious, but it worked. It actually serviced the music. It was not a disaster. And I'll just, I'll I'll read you my little Lanois quote here. Um, Rolling, Rolling Stone did, like, a... I want to say 10-year maybe or even 20-year retrospective of the recording of the album. Whatever. I ate it up. It was like catnip to me. Lanois at that time said, I'm not there to be a nice guy and make it so nice and smooth. I don't do medium records. It's not a masterpiece. It's going to be a fight. It's not an effing masterpiece. Get the F out of my face. (laughs) Whoa. Yeah. And so Bob, you know, we know him. He doesn't... (laughs) He doesn't He's suffer like people. He doesn't suffer people telling him what to do, if anything. <laughs> so that's that's sort of the genesis of this. Except that they made like amazing music, uh-huh. and after that, Bob uh, has produced every one of his own albums since then. Okay. So he's not gone back in. I don't know if he didn't like that or if he kind of you know he's set for another comeback. So maybe it's time. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think he's just been back. It's kind of weird this latest thing with the with the covers records, but I don't think people begrudge him the way that they used no, to. No, it's true. It's true. People are like, "Oh, Dylan sucks." That's not. It's not the feeling right now. No, Dylan's a legend who still puts out decent albums. I think is what right. the, is what the thing. No one's singing they're amazing, but yeah, yeah, it's true. They got they got it okay, really. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay thoughts about them. Okay reputations. That's the right word. Yeah. Okay, so in he released it in September to great acclaim. He was back, like everyone just kind of knew that. Um, before that, though, for the rest of the year, he had after he recorded it, um, he went back on. No, did he not go back out on the road? No, before he went back out on the road, he got very sick with something called histoplasmosis, which is a fungal inflation. Okay. No, fungal infection that caused swelling around his heart and caused immense pain. Are you reading something right now? Yeah, I wrote it down. I wanted to get it right. <laughs> okay. You know, uh, and he almost died. He was Jeez. he was walking around with this thing and he didn't know he had it and he just felt uh-huh. bad, but he just was plowing through it like all the other times he yeah. felt bad. And his daughter, one of them, was like, "Hey man, you need to go see the doctor." And he went in there and they told him he was not too far from dying. Man. Yeah. Yeah, he said uh, his quote about this Bob's was, "I really thought I'd be with Elvis soon." Which is a great way. That's what I'm going to say when I am about to die. I hope, except it'll be Bob. I'll be like, I'll, I'll, I'm really, I'm going to be with Bob soon. Except, except that Bob's going to outlive you. Well, that's a good point. <laughs> he, he will. And uh, did Bob even like Elvis? Yeah, he loved Elvis. Oh, he did. Okay. Yeah, I think I told you last episode that he wanted to record with Elvis. Oh yeah, you did say that. Uh, he Sorry, used to listen, but little Bob. Uh, young Bob in, in Hibbing. <laughs> used, Baby, Bob. Baby Bob used to sit in his room and listen to whatever radio station he could. And he, that's when he got into like black music and rock and roll and uh, country and all this stuff. Like a lot of his okay. influences came okay. from that. Elvis was a was a big thing. He wanted to be Elvis when he was in in high school. Uh, that's why he was crooning away on the last one. Oh, so he was. Cr- boy, was Elvis. he crooning! He threw it all away. <laughs> oh. oh man, that was good. Man, so I really need to. I have so much more to say about this album, but we're we're gonna we're gonna save um, some some of those points. I'll just tell you what happened with the rest okay. of the year. He almost dies. It gets out in the press. They're like Bob Dylan's almost dying, or he's on his death's bed. He never talks to anybody, uh-huh. you know. And no one cared. Uh-huh. No one cared about him enough at this point. They were just like, you know, this was a big. It was a big story that he kind of came through death, and then this album drops. And it's so okay. Okay, so my big question here is: Was did he know he was sick when he was recording the album? Not at all. No. Okay. No, he did not. Because you know, like, I mean, this is a common thing: is people going through like crappy times, all of a sudden release good albums again. Like, there's something about like those, you know, suffering that brings out great artistic triumphs. Correct. A lot of different people. And that was not the case. But that was not what happened here. Not at all. He, he, he was feeling crappy, but not crappy enough to think he was dying. Not at all. He was just okay. he got inspired. Like he had a he had an awakening. And he wanted to he wanted to do this album, and he he put in the effort, you know, for like a good year and a half okay. to do this thing. Um, he went back out on the road, and um, apparently was like a changed performer. Like he was ripping it up again. He was really inspired. He was playing a lot of the new songs. 
Um, his road band had recorded with them with him for the album, so they were back out. Like everyone was good. He played for the Pope in August. Whoa! He played two songs for the Pope as well as two hundred thousand people. Uh, he went to shake the Pope's hand, like in, at the Vatican, you know, like on the Pontiff. Uh-huh. And uh, the Pope worked one of his song lyrics. Of course, it was blowing in the wind into his into his weekly sermon in front of two hundred thousand people. I thought that was crazy. That is ridiculous. Yes. Are you doing bonus points on that? Um, it's going to be with his tour. I'm just going to give it. Okay. A, I'm going to okay. give it a one. It's pretty crazy that's kinda, though. That's kind of crazy. That's kind of awesome. Yep. Um, and so he ended the year basically just about as about as cool as you can be. Like yeah. When that's, I was, that's and I'll just, a year. yeah, and I'll tell, I'll just tell you briefly. I remember sitting in Mrs. Medcraft's art class at that yeah, time. Okay, sweet, sweet Mrs. Medcraft. Saw, yes, both of our favorite teacher, oh, probably of all time. Yeah. I think it's I, mine. If, if listeners at home don't realize, the two of us are brothers. I don't know if we actually mentioned that. <laughs> Did we show, say that? We, we are. So there, keep going with that. All right, so we had the same teacher. She was an awesome, is an yeah. awesome art teacher named uh, yeah. Pe- Peg Medcraft. Maybe my favorite teacher Shout ever. Out. Maybe. Yeah, well, she One of them. inspired me to, me to become an art teacher when I used to be an art teacher. Yeah, that's right. You're literally following in her footsteps. I literally followed her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if I'm she's listening, Peg, I just yeah. I want to tell you, Mrs. Medcraft, you you argued with me once that the Eagles were bad, and I argued at that time because I was a dumb kid that they were good, but you're right, Peg. They, <laughs> they suck. <laughs> oh, Jake, she didn't make it this far into the podcast. Oh, I, I have a little more credit than that. That's right. She probably made it about ten minutes into the first one, and she was thought she would be delighted, and then she was like, "Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about this, guys." She went off and made some sweet art instead. That's right. right. Keep going. You know, one time this is this probably happened the same week that I rediscovered Bob Dylan, but she uh, found <laughs> that a bunch of kids had made bongs in the in the uh, oh yeah in the it clay thing. The oh Speaking man, she as a former art teacher, it happens all the time. She smashed them bongs real good. She smashed him on the ground. It was great. All right. Um, uh, yeah, so I was sitting in her class, and I'm reading Rolling Stone, as I want to do at that age. I was a huge classic rock nerd and also, you know, keeping up on things in the mid-90s. This was before Rolling Stone like, started, like, made Backstreet Boys Band of the Year and stuff like Yes, that. it was just before I remember then. reading them, too, and I was kind of like, it slowly became this thing that I did not want to read anymore. Yes, but at that time, I was definitely like, you know, I don't know if I would call it gospel, uh, but, you know, that in spin, I was very much, again, nascent. Yeah, then I switched over to spin after Rolling Stone. Nascent days of the internet, it right. really did not exist at all, except for, no. like, bad AOL connections. So I was yeah. I was still getting my news from, from the old magazines. And Bob was in there just, you know, being feted as the return artist. And I was like, oh, you know, as a classic rock person. Classic rock was uh-huh. not as cool in the mid-90s as it would be. Later, had been earlier. And I just thought, well, Bob's my guy. This is my... This is my guy. Like, that's almost when I decided, like, Bob's going to be my oh, favorite. Oh, man, like, 20 years from now, I'm going to make a sweet podcast. <laughs> and also, what's a podcast? Also, I don't know what that is, but let's keep going. It's like I'm a radio host, but only for, like, five people? I don't understand. <laughs> All right, so that's Bob Dylan's 1997. I got I to give it to him. All right. All right, so why don't you talk about uh, your points for, for Bowie? Let's point it up. Point it up. Okay, so Bowie, we're going to start with the album of 1997, which was Earthling. Um, a little more about the sound of Earthling. Bowie, like, was... Uh, he gets a little in trouble for this, but it's one of those, I don't know, catch two things what you're supposed to do. Um, you know, some artists get in trouble for, like, trying to chase trends, you know. And others get in trouble for uh, not changing their sound. And uh, Bowie cannot be accused of not changing his sound. Not at all. He gets accused of changing. And so this period does get accused of, of chasing trends. Like, he got into Industrial with 95. He toured with, with uh, Nine Inch Nails. This yep. is the thing that actually happened. Oh, yeah, they, was, they were, like, good pals. Yeah. Um, uh, and then, uh, so he releases this album, which most people kind of, it's always considered, like, his drum and bass album. And not being a super, like, big person about, like, uh, late 90s, all the different genres of electronica, um, it, it was, I, I don't know these things really well, but it definitely was, like, jungle-influenced and drum and bass influence. Okay. Just throw that out there. But it, it's definitely very electronic, but it's not 100% electronic either. Um, it's probably the, the band I can think of that has the most to do with it um, would be Prodigy. Like, it's definitely okay. owes a lot to Prodigy, who were huge at the event. They just oh, they were. Out of the land there, you know. They were supposed to be the and future of music. 
supposedly the future music and all that stuff. And he was Bowie was right in there. And there are a lot of artists making that shift over to this more electronic sound in various ways. You know, Smashing mm-hmm. Pumpkins did that that year. Oh yeah, there were acts like Nine Inch Nails and you know, like Marilyn Manson is huge. And not that I necessarily like all of those guys, but this was like the big thing. This seemed like where you know rock and popular music was going in I the remember. late nineties, and it didn't really make it there. No, it um, you know, end up going way more towards rap and R&B later on. Uh, you know, boy bands came back not long after that, and yeah. like things kind of and rap rock. That's how all what I actually oh, those were, into was, those was, were was dark rap times. rock, which is awful. Yes, it is. But uh, you know, this is where it looked like those things were going. And so, Bowie's right there, and this is a solid, really good album. Like it's just, it is. I, I and it was fun listening to it for the show because it's not one of his classics by any means. And I've definitely listened to it and enjoyed it before plenty of times. But this gave me a chance to like really have a good reason to really get into it and really enjoy it more. I ended up appreciating it way more than I had before. There's a lot going on there, and there's a lot of good stuff in there. This is musically pretty varied. There's a lot of like heavy guitars. He had a good band at the time, which we'll get into, especially with this tour, but it was solid. So I'm giving it a two. Nice. Two for Earthling. Sounds good. good. Um, now, Bowie, we get into singles. Bowie released eight singles in 1997. <laughs> That's most people's oh, full baby. album. <laughs> uh, he also released four music videos. Wow. Loved, his mu- loved him some music videos. Yeah, he did. And I, uh, for point systems here, for those at home, we have a, an overly complicated point system. Basically, the basics behind it is if things were bad, you can actually get negative points. If things are good, it's positive. Albums are worth more points than like singles or tours or stuff like that. So that's just how it goes. Um, so his eight singles are Little Wonder, Dead Man Walking, Seven Years in Tibet, Palace Athena, I'm Afraid of Americans, Perfect Day, I Can't Read, and Earthling in the City. So Little Wonder was the lead single from Earthling. It's good. It's just a good one. Um, I should mention a little bit about a lot of his videos from the time. Uh, his videos were like very much, watching them was very much late 90s, like this whole aesthetic was really funny. It was very much like Marilyn Manson, Nine Inch Nails, Smashing Pumpkins from the period, yep. Prodigy, those guys were just talking about it. They're all making videos like this. So here's some motifs that I picked up on that I thought were like, were kind of funny when I realized this is what music videos of this type look like. So picture all of this, Jake. We got like, uh, we got shaky <laughs> cam going on all over the place. Definitely. And really quick edits. Yep. We have a lot of uh, like, clips that are sped up unnecessarily uh-huh. and then like reversed back yep we're going back to all these different edits where uh, everyone's wearing like weirdly industrial black clothing that looks sort of futuristic yep they all have super heavy eye makeup check uh there is like meat just like <laughs> slabs of meat check are you picturing this are you yeah this? i know i'm in man i remember and all of the main shots are in <laughs> incredibly dirty bathrooms. Yeah, right. Oh, wow. Oh, I got one for you. Are you pictured all of Rusty Metal also involved. So I got I got one for you in case in case you forgot this. The um like way oversaturated color palette. On oh, that. yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Oversaturated color palette. Oh, I should show that with that. That was a good one. You, so you you've seen all of this, right? Yeah, the so last time the last videos, time I watched any music. Me, what what is it about this that makes it so 1997? And that those are the things I picked up. Oh, I mean, so I'm Bowie with made three videos, well, two videos like that. A little Wonder is one of them. It's not that great. Whatever, this song's still good enough for you to give it one point. Okay. Dead Man Walking was the second single off of Earthling. Actually, I think there was one single of it, at least from in '96, but I can't remember which one. Dead Man Walking, a really good, solid song. Another completely forgettable uh, video. Give it half a point. It's not as good as a little wonder. Okay, but it's, it's solid. Half point. Um, we got Seven Years in Tibet was released as a single. Yeah. Um, that one's decent. It it's decent, but not amazing. And its video is is just like one of those fake live performance things. It was really not a very good video at all. Um, it was not, didn't get a wide release. He also recorded it, in addition to English, he recorded it in Mandarin Chinese for some reason. That's great. Which is something Bowie does periodically, is release things in different languages. Did he mind that? Songs in French, German, Italian, uh, Indonesian, Japanese, all kinds of stuff for some reason. So, we got that in there. I mean, I'm giving zero points in that one, just right. worth it. Sounds um, good. Palace Athena was a live single. Palestine is actually a song from his 1991 album, or 1993 album, uh, Black Tie, White Noise. And he recorded, he released it as the Dow Jones Index. <laughs> and Dow, Dow is spelled T-A-O, as oh, in like the Eastern philosophy. That's horrible. And Jones gets in there because that's his real last name. 
Wow. And he released like, and it was like super. You know, he would he some of his as, his shows he's tried doing DJ sets as Dow Jones Index. He do this at festivals and stuff. Like, he'd do his big headliner show. Wow. And then do like DJ sets and you nobody know, knew who he was because he was doing it under the name the Dow Jones Index just to see what was that happening. That is ridiculous. Kind of interesting that he did it, but the results are only okay. So I give you zero on that one. So All right. It's not worth taking points away. Next up is I'm Afraid of Americans. Oh, great song. Which is a great song. It really also is. Also a great video. This is one really great video of the year with Trent Reznor in it. Yep, I remember that video. And it's always like looking really paranoid. This is a guy just walking around New York in this totally sweet yellow turtleneck. Because he's afraid of Americans. He's afraid of Americans. And Trent Reznor is just like kind of creeping behind him in a super creepy way the entire time. Because he's a scary and, American. Uh, he's a scary American. And uh, it's, a, it's a good video. Yeah. It's a good one. So I'm giving a point for that one. Great. Next up on the Singles Parade <laughs> is Perfect Day. The Lou Perfect Reed Day song? is one of those ridiculous charity singles. Okay. Uh, and by Perfect Day, we're talking about the classic Lou Reed song yeah. from Transformer. It's such a perfect day. I'm, I'm glad, glad I spent it with, with you. But you got to picture the song now with every single like part of a line sung by a different artist who thought that they mattered in 1997. What? Oh, yeah, oh, it was a geez. charity single a la, you know, Do They Know It's Christmas or yeah. We Are the World with all kinds of singers. I could not find the video. There is apparently a video oh, of, of all of this happening. come on. And I couldn't find it. I was kind of sad. It was, I, I thought it was probably mm. pretty bad. Anyway, Bowie was there. Of course he was there. Bowie produced the original song, actually. Uh, it, it was bad. He gets negative one for that one. Wow, negative We're one. We're losing points for that one. Shouldn't all right. Next up is I Can't Read, which is a non... <laughs> well, I know. It's That's great. I can't um, read. It's a non-album single. It was written for the movie The Ice Storm. I remember. I don't know what that movie is. I remember that but, movie. But he did this song for... It was a Tin Machine, tin machine song. Okay. And uh, he re-recorded it for The Ice Storm as kind of acoustic-y. It was really a good indication of the direction he was going to go next, because Earthling was kind of the end of his electronic period. He went into more of like a uh, neo-classic rock period after that. And this is kind of the indication that that's happening. So it's a decent song. No video on it. Whatever, I'm getting a half point. Okay. And our last thing here isn't actually a signal. It's an EP. It's a really <laughs> crazy exclusive EP called okay. Earthling in the City. Uh-huh. It's shipped with copies of GQ magazine. What? A certain issue of GQ Man. So obviously I don't have this thing either. Like, it seems impossible to find. You don't worry where to find it. It was just an, I kind of an odds and sods release. All right. It's got single edits. It's got the uh, the Mandarin Chinese version of uh, of the Tibet. Somebody, 10 years in Tibet. Seven years in Tibet. Uh, it's got remix, unnecessary remixes on it. A couple live tracks. Whatever. It's a zero. Okay. It's not zero. Wow, that's right, a lot. going on, the Earthling Tour, which was like eight months long, yep. was, uh, was everything I listened to, it was awesome. Okay. It was really great. The band is super tight. It's one of the best bands he had in years, in my opinion. Okay. And, uh, and they really held it together. And they went everywhere. They were all over the world. I don't know how many days that thing was, but it was a lot. Okay. So that's clearly worth a point. That's great. True. Bowie Bonds. I'm giving him a point for Bowie Bonds. Got to do it. that one enough, but yeah, it's important enough. And, uh, and birthday concert, I'm giving half a point for the birthday concert. B-Day concert. So, add it all up here, we got a total of six and a half points for Bowie. Six and after a half? After we, re- after we remove a point for, uh, for Bowie, <laughs> which no wow. one should have been involved with. Well, that's amazing. So, it's a pretty, six and a half is a pretty solid year. Yeah, I think we're... uh we, that late in his career. We've talked for at least three podcasts already in the last couple days about how surprised we are that Bowie did this well, points-wise. Yeah. This year. I mean, it, it sounds... Was impressive, He yeah. did a lot of stuff. Most of it decent, it sounds like. Yeah, I, I would have to look at this more in depth. I think that may be the most singles he ever released in one year. It sounds like the most singles anyone's released in this entire year. <laughs> yeah, eight singles is pretty That's impressive. a lot of singles, man. Also, we've got to recognize that this Earthling, the album, which has nine tracks, uh, five of them were released as singles. Yeah, that's Before interesting. Four this year and one in the end of 96. I feel like that's a sign of the times. Yeah, it probably is. And all of them were released with 3,000 remixes each. Wow. <laughs> oh, actually, one more mention quick of I'm Afraid of America. Uh-huh. So the, the remixes are actually notable and I'm Afraid of America. So yeah. Who cares? I remember that. Because uh, he handed it over to Trent Reznor, who, and I think he worked with other members of Nine Inch Nails at the time, but they remixed the song six times. 
yeah. and released it essentially as it was released as a single, but it's like a 42 minute single. It's essentially an LP That's great. of remixes and they're all incredibly different. And uh, Bowie, he, he, I found some interview of him talking about how impressed he was with it, that he felt like it was like an album. I listened to it and it actually is like respectable. Like they were, one of the remixes is not Nine Inch Nails, one of them is somebody else. But the other five are there, are, are all Nine Inch Nails, and they're very completely different, very is really very unique and very interesting. So that, that goes towards that point for uh for I'm afraid Americans too. Alright. I'll hand it over to you because that's enough about the the eight singles of David Boy. Someone said that's too much about the eight singles of David Boy. <laughs> uh, I, don't know I feel like David Boy's singles hijacked this podcast. Well, he released too many. <laughs> he did. It's his fault. Thanks, Bowie. Yeah, nice one, Bowie. Uh, all right, so um, points-wise, uh, speaking of singles, Bob didn't release any in 1997. Okay. However, he did put out one video for uh, Not Dark Yet, which is probably the best song of Time Out of Mind, and he released the video, so I'm giving it a point because it's kind of like a single slash video okay. thing. It's a great yeah, song. Okay, for point system, we're kind of releasing, we're kind of combining singles and videos together. Yes, which I actually, points. I think that's a great idea. Um, okay, so he did that. I'll just speak to his tour, which, as I mentioned before, was kind of reinvigorated, and he played for the Pulp, so we're going to give that a point. Um, and then, for the album, I'm giving it, uh, this is our first plus five album of our podcast. Oh. I in my oh brain I think I'm I think I'm giving Bob over the course of you know his five long, would be a perfect score everybody a know. perfect score that's a plus five and I think the music on it is like a plus four or plus four point five but the okay. narrative and the way that it rescued him gets gets that extra it pushes that extra, that extra point. point back up all right and also nice because one, well done. it's a template for the rest of, you know, up until the present day. It's a template for the rest of his career. Like, before this came out, he was, you know, flailing about and didn't have a template like he did in the 60s or the 70s. Right. And now, you know, this was like the first real appearance of Growly Bob, Growly Voice Bob. <laughs> I love Growly Bob. Oh, love it's so great. Much. It's like 20 years of Growly Bob now. I feel like we should celebrate. <laughs> By by smoking well, a pack man. of cigs, you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, the music on it, uh, Daniel Lanois, the producer, had kind of a sound. And it was kind of this hypnotic, um, kind of churning sound. Lots of little figures uh, of music going around and around and repeating and such like that. And Bob okay. and Bob came in and really... Sounds like Phil Glass in that description. Yeah, okay, that's a bad description then. Um, it's slower than Philip Glass, like okay. slower and more, it, it's serviced in this case, it's serviced Bob's songwriting. Like the only, okay. the only thing that really stuck out in all these little figures of music going around and around was Bob's lyrics and his voice. Like okay. the, the lyrics are really, you can understand everything he's saying, which as you know, is not always the case with our favorite artists and, uh, Bob in particular. Uh-huh. So you hear every word he's saying. Everyone is pointed. He's like singing the hell out of it. He's really, he's really into it. He got these lyrics, you know, about as perfect as they could be um, on this record. And um, his music since then has sounded at least a little bit similar to this. Although Lanois has not been um, involved anymore. There's uh-huh. kind of like it kind of set this template. And his next album is a classic as well. It's not a five, but his next album came out a few years later in two thousand one. And um, he produced it, but there are definitely some similarities. Like, he kind of he made the rest of his career to this point off of okay. this sound okay. and this uh, kind of dedication to the songwriting. I want to say there's 11 songs on it. It's very long, as you found out. 70, yeah. 72 yeah, minutes? 76 minutes or something. 76, yeah, barely fits on a, it on a CD. It fills up the CD, yeah. It does. It should have been a double for sure. Um, and I want to say, you know, probably nine or ten out of them are are really good. The one exception in my mind, and people would argue about this, is Make You Feel My Love, which became a huge oh, yeah, hit for, like, that. three other, like, country artists. Like, Garth Brooks had a huge <laughs> hit with it. I think Shania oh, Twain yeah. or something. So it, but, make but it, me feel my, wait, make yeah. you feel my love. Make you feel my love. Let me dog love. so much. It's great. Um, it really stick to me. It sticks out on the album like a sore thumb because the rest of it is so much more um, dark, and that's just a straight yeah. up love song. 
The other misconception... How dare he be in love? Yeah, well, he kind of... I don't know. I have no idea what his personal... <laughs> nobody knows what his personal life was going through. Uh, that's another question. Um, but the other interesting misconception about it, probably because he had an actual death scare, is that the perception of it is as one of the three like great mortality records ever made. And I don't know... Well, include, if, including Bowie's Black Star, right? It, well, that might be the best one, seeing as how he actually... Seeing as how he we, was dying, he, he was, was dying exactly, and Bob Bob was not. Um, but it's uh, there's definitely allusions to mortality, and he he writes one of his best, uh, you know, I don't want what to call it. It's not a Christian song, but it's like a song, uh, you know, detailing his relationship with God. Anyway, okay, um, on trying to get to heaven, trying to get to heaven before they close the door. <laughs> it kind of sounds like it's about death. There, it is. Um, but many of the songs, most of them, like a little bit of an overwhelming majority of them are about lost love and okay. um, the way that he's thinking about it in middle age. And um, it's great. It's like a great middle age broken heart record, also a great mortality record. But the mortality part became what it was known for. I don't know if you would agree knowing it, knowing it as you do. Like, is that how you think of it or what? What do you, no, what do you I think it was comeback album. I, you know, I didn't okay. know much about the themes or anything behind it, except that that's, you know, my superficial knowledge of it going in was comeback album, late 90s. That was it. Comeback album. All right, so I'm going to give it a plus five, which brings Bob okay. to, he squeaks out a victory here with plus seven. Okay, beating, beating this is bo- the close one. Yeah. Our and closest so far. Closest so far, and I have, um, as our closing thought, I have a, I have a great what if for you. Wait, so what are his other points here? We're just gonna, oh, I'm sorry, video. Oh, wait. The, the video's video? one. And the tour is one. And the tour the, is one. All right, got it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And the, the album is five. And I was going to put a special point if I needed to for a cheating death point because he actually did it that year. But I didn't have to. So we'll just, we'll go with this. <laughs> okay. And, uh, you like had more in your arsenal there to, to I take had, down I had one more. I know. Well, we both agreed. Ready to destroy him. Uh, we both agreed that. Bowie and his, and his spiky hair and eye makeup. He was a little trying too. To, trying to make a living. He was a little too positive that year. We trying needed... to make a living in dirty bathrooms <laughs> in 1997. Uh, so, to close us out here, I have a great what if for you. Okay. What if Bob Dylan had died a month before this album comes out in 1997? Oh, man. What if his daughter yeah. didn't send him to the doctor and he was like, okay, and go and get his heart checked out? He actually could have died, and then this record came out, which. Uh, at the time was perceived as a great mortality record anyway. Right. Would that have, you know, given the heft of Bob's catalog and the way that he uh, would have gone out, would that have dulled Bowie's eventual greatest mortality record of all time thing? No, because there's 20 years in between. Okay. Fair. If it close, maybe. No, but, but when Bowie died, everyone would have been comparing it. That's what Bowie. I'm saying. Everyone would have been talking about that. Because Bowie came out with one of the great mortality albums of all time and then died two days later. Yeah, no, I know, it's crazy. And then everyone's like, holy crap, this thing's about death! Fuck the bag! I know I was doing it. I was sitting there already going, like, this is his best album in 30 years. Yeah. It was. And then, uh, and then he died, and I went, holy crap, this whole thing is about death! Exactly. You were, you were there, you heard me talking about it. At the I did. And I, I think that that exact narrative would have happened with, with Time Out of Mind. It would have been more so if the album came out after he was dead, I think. That's what I'm saying. I'm not sure. Well, I'm not sure which one's bigger, like having the album come out and then die two days later, or die and then have this album come out with just this well, one sitting here and like a month later. Back then, when records I don't know sold, what's the better narrative. Back then, when records sold, Time yeah. Out of Mind would have sold like a million copies in its first week. Oh man, it would have been huge. It would have been so big, and so big. It would have dominated that conversation and narrative would have dominated to a degree that at least I'm thinking, when Bowie did his great exit, yeah. that Bob would have been mentioned in almost every paragraph. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They would have been comparing it. I mean... Yeah. Because the other one that did, that did it the same year as Bowie was Leonard Cohen. Which That's was right. Which a close, a close story. He did kind of the same thing. Right. Not, not quite as dramatic of a timeline. No, not... But, yeah. Well, how yeah. can you get more That's dramatic interesting. That? that is an interesting what if. Yeah. So there you have it. Man, well, now we're up to 2016. I'm, I'm just going to talk about the first week and a half of, of the year the whole time. Because Bowie died on the 10th of the That's all that matters. <laughs> all right. All uh, that matters. Tell us what we got coming up next. All right, next up, uh, next episode is, is uh, we're taking a dip back into the worst decade for both of our guys. Hey, with a, The incomparable 1983. Ooh, baby. So we're going to take a look at what was a wildly successful commercial year for Bowie and uh, the beginning of a artistically bankrupt period for, for Bowie. I think 
Dylan had already started his artistically bankrupt period in 1983 by that time, right? Well, um, he was probably ready for a comeback by then, right? Well, yes, he was definitely ready for a comeback, but it's only because he had stubbornly held on to his Christian trilogy for too long. Oh, right, right, right. Christian trilogy, yeah. Right, so. So look forward to that next time. It'll be a little, uh,. Interesting. I can't wait to listen to a, a really bad Dylan album. I'm ready. <laughs> over and over again. You know <laughs> exactly. This might be the first time I ever really listened to it. I'm going to be just dancing, because this is, this is Let's Dance. I'm just going to dance. Let's dance. Non stop until we record the next podcast. Looking forward to it. Alrighty. Well, uh, All right. For Bowie versus Dylan, that's it. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>